Well, if you're visiting with us, we preach through books of the Bible. And right now I've been preaching through the gospel according to John. And let's turn to John chapter 9. We've come to the ninth chapter and we're going to cover this entire chapter today. And um, I'm going to begin by reading it. Uh, And if you would follow along in your copy of the scripture or on the screen, we're going to read John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the word works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself." His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he say to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it 
been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You know, it doesn't take anything more than a sort of cursory glance at human history or a peek at the things that go on across the world today or just a snapshot into the thoughts and desires of the typical human heart to see that there's something terribly wrong with the world of human beings. One of the ways that God describes this reality in his word is by employing the metaphor of darkness. The world of humanity is shrouded in darkness. The world is shrouded in the darkness of ignorance and folly, which come from refusing to worship the one true God and worshiping created things instead. The world is shrouded in the darkness of moral depravity, which comes from rejecting the righteous ways of God and instead following the corrupt desires of our sinful nature. The world is shrouded in the darkness of bondage and oppression, which comes from being enslaved to sin and under the rule of the evil one. The world is shrouded in the dark shadow of imminent death and final judgment, which come as a just punishment for sin from God. The world, you see, is in spiritual darkness. And the obvious question that then leaves a world of humanity in darkness is, is there any hope? Is there any light which can penetrate down into the spiritual darkness of this world? Well, the passage that we've come to this morning in our study of John's gospel provides a very hopeful answer to that question. The chapter begins with Jesus seeing a blind man. And John lets us in on the fact that this particular man had actually been born blind. Now, apparently this was a somewhat well-known fact because the disciples seemed to be aware of the fact that this man was born blind. And they had a question for Jesus about it. They say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now that type of question, of course, in our day, is absolutely unthinkable. It's completely politically incorrect to say something like that. But in first century Palestine, and in much of ancient Semitic history, the people of God would have assumed that physical suffering was always 
directly tied to personal sin. It's the mindset that you see, for instance, in the book of Job, where the three friends of Job insist that Job's suffering had to be the result of some secret sin that he had committed. What made the case of this blind man interesting, though, is that he was blind from birth before he had been able to commit any sin. And so the question of the disciples, do you see? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Was this man's blindness the result of his own sin? Maybe some sin he committed in the womb or some sin that God knew he was going to commit later in his life? Or was his blindness the result of a sin that his parents had committed? Maybe his mother stole something while he was in her womb. Maybe she had conceived out of wedlock. It sounds ridiculous to us, right? But that's the way they were thinking. Well, of course, this way of thinking wasn't right, was it? The Bible doesn't teach that an individual's suffering is always the direct result of specific sin in their life. Now, of course, we hasten to say that at one level, all human suffering is the result of sin. In that suffering is the product of the curse. And the curse resulted from Adam's first sin. And the Bible does also teach that sometimes a person's physical suffering is the direct result of a sin they committed. In fact, we saw that in this book earlier on in chapter 5 where we saw that lame man by the pool of Bethesda and Jesus healed him and then he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the clear implication of Jesus' words is that he knew that this man's lame condition had in some way been the result of sin that he had committed. But this is not always the case. For instance, we know that Job's suffering was not the result of his sin. In some ways, that's the whole point of the book, or one of the main points of the book. Or think of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember that he was given, 2 Corinthians 11 says, he was given by God a thorn in his flesh, which buffeted his body, it probably was some kind of physical ailment. But Paul discovered it, it was not because he had sinned, it was rather to keep him from being conceited and to be a means by which God's power was perfected in his weakness. So the disciples were wrong to automatically assume that this man had been born blind because of some sin that he or his parents committed and Jesus corrected their way of thinking. You see, he even says in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. But it still left the question, why then was he born blind? Well, Jesus addresses that as well. He reveals the reason in the rest of the verse. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Jesus said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what works of God is he talking about? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the work that he was about to perform by God's power 
in healing this man from his blindness. In other words, God had ordained that this man be born blind so that Jesus might come along in this moment and display his divine power by healing him of his blindness. In short, this man was born blind so that his blindness might serve to glorify Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, stop and think of the profound implications of that reality for your own life. Is the suffering that you experience in your life a good thing? Of course it isn't. Suffering is a result of the curse. And we long for a day when God will banish the curse and make all things new so that Revelation 21, 4 tells us there will be no more mourning, crying, or pain. But Jesus' words about this man's blindness reveal and remind us of the fact that the sufferings of this cursed world are not out of God's control. Far from it. In fact, Jesus says that God ordained this man be born blind so that the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, might be displayed when he healed him of his blindness. And brothers and sisters, let's extrapolate a biblical principle from this, which is taught elsewhere in Scripture. If you are suffering under some circumstance right now in your life, if I am, we have to let this truth sink in. God has ordained those sufferings in your life as well. They're not good, but God has planned them for good purposes. It is his will that you experience that affliction right now. He's not forgotten you. He's not forsaken you. He knows exactly what you're going through because he has ordained it to occur just as Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. And while we may not know the exact purpose, we know that Romans 8 says that all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is going to use the affliction you are experiencing to bring about your good and his glory through it. Samuel Rutherford, the great Scottish Puritan, had these words for the suffering Christian. My dear brother, let God make of you what he will. He will end all with consolation and shall make glory out of your suffering. So, Jesus declared that God had ordained that this man be born blind so that on that very day he might come along and perform a miracle of healing in his life. But before Jesus performed this miracle, he turned to his disciples and he made this statement in verses 4 and 5. He said, We work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now it is here, of course, that this passage sort of leaps into the spiritual stratosphere, as it were. Here was Jesus standing before a man who had lived in the utter darkness of blindness his entire life, and as he stood over him, he declared himself to be the light of the world. So, just as the 
presence of the sun lights up the earth when it rises in the morning and then leaves it in darkness again at the end of the day when it sinks below the horizon. So Jesus says here, as long as he is in the world, he fills it with light. And then when his life would be extinguished at the cross, the world would be left in darkness of night until his resurrection on the third day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that is an astounding claim. I guarantee you, if one of your friends made that kind of claim about themselves, you would think they were a mad person. Jesus boldly and soberly makes it. But there's something even grander, I think, about this claim that Jesus made. You see, when Jesus announced that he was the light of the world, he's clearly tapping into a metaphor, the metaphor of light and darkness. That's not only common to human experience, but it's also deeply rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. So these dual themes of light and darkness, they run through the whole Old Testament. Light is often symbolic in the Old Testament of truth and righteousness and life, while darkness is symbolic of immorality and ignorance and death. And of course, God is presented in the Old Testament as the source, then, of all light. Apart from him, there's just darkness. So from the Old Testament perspective, those who believe in God and obey his word walk in the light, while those who worship idols and practice immorality stumble around in the darkness. And in accordance with that Old Testament theme, When Israel descended into idolatry and immorality during the kingdom period, the Old Testament would use this metaphor of darkness to describe both their own spiritual condition and the ominous judgment that was coming upon them. They were in darkness. But at the same time, the prophets in Israel were predicting a day That would come in the future when God would visit his people in the person of the Christ, the Messiah, his ultimate anointed king, in order to redeem them from this darkness. And this redemption through the Messiah was often described by the prophets in terms of a light shining into the darkness. For instance, a very familiar passage. We're coming up on the Christmas season. Think of Isaiah chapter 9 where the prophet said, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And you say, what is that light? Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This child who is a man and also God who would reign on David's throne The Messiah would be born into the world 
from God to redeem his people from darkness. He would be a light to them and they would come into the light of his righteous rule forever. Or again, consider another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, where the Lord famously spoke through the prophet of his servant. You remember the servant songs of Isaiah. This is the Messiah and the redemption which he would bring is described again in terms of light. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Or think of another passage, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, where the prophet described the glorious redemption which God would bring about in the last days for his people and for the nations through, again, the Messiah. And he says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Do you see? Seven centuries after Isaiah wrote these things, here in John 9, we now hear a man saying of himself, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke of. I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God's ultimate anointed King, foretold by the prophets who have now come into the world to bring the light of God's salvation to his people and to the ends of the earth who now sit in darkness. By the way, it's the second of seven I am statements in John's gospel, which reveal his identity, his mission. Then, in verse 6, look, it says, having said these things, that is, having made this remarkable claim about himself, Jesus then turns to the blind man who's sitting before him, and it says this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now what you are supposed to see here is that there is a close connection between the miracle which Jesus performs and the claim that he had just made about himself, right? The miracle is a sign pointing to the validity of the claim. So, Think how this works in John's gospel. Back in chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. And then what did he do? He validated it by multiplying five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 people. Later on, in chapter 11, he will say, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what will he do? Validate it by raising Lazarus from the dead after four days in the tomb. So now Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And then he validates that claim by taking this man who had been born blind, lived in darkness his whole life, and causing his eyes to see the light of day for the first time. By the way, it's the sixth of seven miraculous signs recorded in the Gospel of John, which each confirm 
a truth about him. In this case, the sign confirms and validates the I am statement. He is the light of the world. Now, from this point on, the rest of the narrative focuses on how various people respond to this miraculous sign and to the claim that it validates. So the stage is set in verses 8 through 12 as the people of the town who knew this man as a regular beggar who they had seen uh, blind, begging for money on the street corner. They knew he was blind from birth and they now encounter him as one who can see. And verse 8 says, the neighbors, those who had seen him before as a beggar, they were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some couldn't believe that it's the same person. They kept in, they said, oh, it's not him. It just looks like him. And he keeps saying, I am that man. Then the crucial question emerges in verse 10. The people asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And he tells them, the man called Jesus had done it. Now, as soon as the people heard the man claim that Jesus had opened his eyes, they took the matter to the religious leaders. After all, this was a miracle on the scale of those that had been performed by the prophets Elijah and Elisha in times past. And if Jesus has really proved himself to be a prophet of that caliber, well then, of course, the religious leaders in the nation need to know about it. So, verses 13 through 17, the people bring the man who had been healed from his blindness to the Pharisees. And here's where the tension begins to enter the story. Because, of course, we already know from the Gospel of John that the Pharisees know about Jesus' miracles. They had had multiple run-ins with him before. Starting back in chapter 5, we had seen that they had already rejected him as the Messiah and were seeking to kill him. In fact, the last chapter, chapter 8, had ended with them picking up stones to throw at him to try to kill him right at that point for blasphemy in the temple because he had said before Abraham was, I am. And so we know that the claims of this blind man that he had been healed by Jesus are not going to be met with warmth and joy by the Pharisees. Now at this point I want you to notice that little phrase that is inserted in verse 14 in preparation for this examination before the Pharisees. It says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So he's telling you that this healing had taken place on the Sabbath day. And then notice that as soon as the Pharisees hear the man tell them that Jesus had healed him by making mud and anointing his eyes with it, some of them say, well, this man cannot be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. So the Pharisees refused to acknowledge the significance of the obvious miracle. They refused to accept what it signified about Jesus because of the way that he performed the miracle and that it violated their Sabbath rules. How did it violate their Sabbath rules? Well, interestingly, first of all, according to the rabbinical law, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath except in emergencies. Second, There's actually material in the rabbinical tradition which says that it was unlawful to perform the type of kneading work required to make mud. And third, there was a debate among the rabbis as to whether it was lawful to anoint someone's eyes on the Sabbath, 
as Jesus had done to the blind man. See, this is exactly why Jesus did it the way that he did, because he intentionally chose to heal this man on the Sabbath and to do it by making mud and anointing his eyes, because in doing so, he knew they would object and he would thereby be exposing the invalid and even oppressive nature of their traditions which the Pharisees, by the way, were using as a basis for condemning him. Now, brothers and sisters, we ought to stop here and before we look down our noses on the Pharisees for making extra-biblical rules and imposing them on people, we ought to stop and consider the fact that we as Christians have been known for doing the same thing in the church. Because it's very easy to take a real command in Scripture and then extrapolate from it a set of rules which we have made up and then to turn and say to others, in order to keep God's command, you must keep our rules. And so man-made rules end up being imposed upon other people, even in the church, as if they had divine authority. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing with the Sabbath command in our text, except they ended up opposing Jesus. Because Jesus would not comply with their rules. Brothers and sisters, that should be a scary thought to us, shouldn't it? We ought to take heed that we don't find ourselves in the same position. Now, of course, there are clear commands in Scripture, right? that God does require us to, as Christians to follow and to hold each other accountable to follow. And there are also principles of wisdom, which we must heed in relation to various issues in life. But we have to beware that we do not impose upon others man-made rules in the name of God. And also, if people try to do that to us, we ought not to submit to them, lest we lend those rules credibility. So, the Pharisees stake out their position. Jesus was a sinner because he broke their Sabbath rules. Therefore, he must not be from God. There was, however, a serious problem with this position. The problem is nicely highlighted there in verse 16, where we see that initially there was a division among the Pharisees. Some said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That is, he doesn't keep it according to their rules. While others said, but how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? See the dilemma? If Jesus was a blatant Sabbath breaker, then how could he possibly have healed this man? Would God give a sinner the power to perform a miracle of this caliber? The Pharisees really only had one way out of this dilemma, didn't they? They had to try and prove that Jesus didn't really heal this man. They had to prove, perhaps, that this man wasn't ever really blind. So they call in the man's parents to see if perhaps they might testify that he had never been blind in the first place. And in verse 19, we see that the parents come in and they say to him, to the parents, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now, I have a hard time believing that the parents were the only ones in town here who had not heard of their son's story and what had happened to him. 
but you see the temperatures turned up a little bit here in front of the Pharisees. So the parents knew that their son had been healed. They almost certainly knew that he had said that Jesus had healed him. But verse 22 points out that they also knew something else. They knew that the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And you have to understand, this was no small threat. One commentator puts it helpfully, he says, since the synagogue was the center not only of Jewish religious life, but also communal life, expulsion from it represented a severe form of ostracism. There's something akin to it today in the Muslim world. If you were to become a Christian, you'd be completely ostracized from the community. So, as it says in verse 22, because they feared the Jews... The parents affirmed that this was their son. Yes, he had been born blind, but they refused to acknowledge that they knew anything about Jesus performing the healing for fear of being thrown out of the synagogue. In fact, in the end, quite cowardly, I might add, they put the burden back on their son to bear witness to Jesus. Ask him, they say, verse 21. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And this brings us to the man who had been healed. What did he have to say? How did he respond to this miraculous sign performed by Jesus? And ironically, the blind man is the only one who sees the significance of the miracle. Back in verse 11, he was not afraid to tell the crowd that it was the man called Jesus who had opened his eyes. And when the Pharisees asked him about it in verse 17, they say, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He confidently asserted, he is a prophet. After all, you read back through the Old Testament, there's really only one person in history who healed people from blindness, and that was the prophet Elijah. But even he didn't heal a man born blind, born blind. Finally, verses 24 through 34, the Pharisees call the man back for a second examination and they, they try to get him to break, to admit that he's lying about what Jesus had done to him, that Jesus really couldn't be a prophet. In verse 24 they say, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. At this point though, an amazing thing begins to happen in the narrative. This man, who had spent his whole life as a blind beggar on the street corner, begins instructing these learned Pharisees about how to understand the obvious meaning of this whole situation. And as the section unfolds, we see he's witty. He's funny. He's absolutely devastating to them. Indeed, he ends up exposing that it is the Pharisees who were spiritually blind and therefore darkened in their hearts. Notice the dialogue as it unfolds there in verses 24 through 34. They say, we know this man is a sinner. He says, basically, well, I don't know about that. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And they try to get him to recount how Jesus had healed him so they could point to the Sabbath violation Tell us again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? But he refuses to play their game. 
I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they're, of course, enraged at his insolence. And what do they do? They insult him. You are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he's come from. Now he has them cornered. Why, this is an amazing thing, he says. You don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened my eyes. Let's think about this. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if someone is a worshiper of God and does his will, then God listens to him. Now let's consider what we see in Jesus. Here is a man who performed an unprecedented miracle. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And yet you say you don't know whether he's come from God or not. You can almost hear him saying, come on, you guys. It's so obvious. Quote, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And really, what could the Pharisees respond, or say in reply to that? They had nothing to say. So what do they do? Like we do when we don't have anything to say and, re- and we've lost an argument. Resort to personal attack. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Oh, the irony. Because that's exactly what he had done. The blind man had taught the religious leaders the most simple and obvious truth about Jesus Christ, signified in the miracle of his own healing, but they were unwilling to accept it. And then finally, they added injury to their insult, and they cast him out of the synagogue. Now that final scene of the chapter, it's it's a beautiful thing that unfolds. Verse 35, we see Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now that term son of man, it comes from Daniel 7.13. Most most likely it was a way of referring to the Messiah sent into the world to be God's king and to save his people. And Jesus is saying to him, do you believe in him? Have you put your trust in him? Now remember, this is the first time that this man was ever physically seeing Jesus with his eyes because when he first encountered Jesus, he'd been blind. Jesus had rubbed mud on his eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and then he'd be able to see. So that's what he did. But by that time, Jesus was gone. So Jesus was speaking to him, but the man didn't recognize who he was. So he said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus replied, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. In other words, with this brand new eyesight that the man had from Jesus, he was looking into the face of the Christ, his Savior, his King. And he responded in the only way appropriate for one who has come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe And he worshipped him. Now I want you to see the primary point that's being made in all of this. Jesus revealed himself to be the light of the world. And as he shone forth into a darkened world, the man who was blind was made to see. But the Pharisees, who thought they could see, turned away from the light and became blind. 
Notice how Jesus explains this in verse 39. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, as the light of Christ shines into the darkness of this world, it has two effects on men, which then divides them into two groups. Those who are blinded by the light as an act of judgment, and those who are unable to see it as an act of grace. And indeed, we have to say that the same dynamic is continuing to occur for everyone down through the ages who has read this chapter of John's Gospel, including us who are here today. We've all encountered the light of the world revealed here in the person of Jesus Christ. What effect will it have upon you? Will you reject the light? Will you refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you be unwilling to put your trust in Him to give you eternal life? Will you be like the Pharisees who rejected the light of Christ because in their pride they thought that they could see fine without Him? Maybe like the Pharisees, you think you already know the score when it comes to God. Maybe you think you're already going to heaven. Maybe like the Pharisees, you think that by following a certain set of rules and cultural norms and performing certain religious duties, you've already secured God's acceptance. In fact, you may be offended by the very notion that unless you put your trust in Jesus as Savior, you are blind and in darkness. But if this is you, you see, the text is telling you you desperately need to humble yourself because according to the Bible, you're never going to earn God's acceptance by trying to be a good person or by going through the motions of religion. Rather, the Bible says that your condition is much more serious than that and requires a much more powerful remedy. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you need to be made alive. Titus 3 3 says that you are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures and you need to be liberated. Romans 5.18 says that you are condemned before God because of your sins and you need to be forgiven. Romans 1.18 says that you are under God's wrath for your sin and you need to be saved from perishing in hell forever. See, apart from Christ, we're in a desperate condition. Psalm 107 puts it this way, describes people as sitting in the dark, in darkness and in the shadow of death, a prisoner in affliction and irons. You cannot help yourself. You need someone else to rescue you. And God has sent a Savior into the world, His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, at the end of this Gospel, John tells us that Jesus, this one that we're reading about here, who said, I am the light of the world, ends up crucified at the hands of wicked men. And Luke tells us something very interesting about what happened as he hung on the cross. Quote, There was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. Why was there darkness at the cross of Christ? Because on the cross, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus as the servant of the Lord, had made himself an offering for guilt, that he was bearing the sins of many 
that he was being crushed for their iniquities. In other words, at the cross, the darkness of God's judgment for the sins of his people fell upon him instead. And in that way, Jesus accomplished redemption for them. For all sinners who will believe in him. Like the blind man in our text. So through his death on the cross, any who put their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord can find new spiritual life, liberation from bondage, removal of guilt, rescue from judgment. He might come into eternal life. You know, some of you here might be more like the parents of the blind man who refuse to acknowledge the light of Christ because of what it would cost them, potentially. And make no mistake, it will cost you something to come to the light of Christ. First of all, coming to the light of Christ means coming out of the darkness of your sin. In John 3.19, Jesus had said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So anyone who would come into the light of Christ must leave the darkness of sin behind them. Oh, you'll still be a sinner, but you must be committed to turning away from your sin, forsaking your sin, in order to come to Jesus in faith for salvation. To put it another way, faith in Christ is inseparably related to repentance from sin. The two go hand in hand. If someone says, well, I believe in Christ, but you refuse to turn from your sin. It's like claiming to be in the light, but you're really still walking in the darkness. John put it this way in 1 John 2, 3-5. He says, I'm by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So first of all, coming into the light of Christ will mean parting with that sin that perhaps you now love. Second of all, coming into the light of Christ means being willing to face the rejection of the world. The blind man's parents refused to acknowledge Christ because... They feared the social ostracization of being put out of the synagogue. And you may face the same type of thing if you put your faith in Christ. In John chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples that the world would hate them and persecute them even as they had hated and persecuted him. People in our society may look down on you treat you as ignorant and backwards and accuse you of intolerance if you decide to trust and follow Jesus. And at some point, it may cost you far more than that. You know, Christians throughout history have been denied basic human rights, had their property confiscated, been in prison, been killed for their faith. Indeed, it's happening right now in many places in the world. This may happen to us. If you come into the light of Christ... John 12, 25, Jesus told his disciples as he faced the imminent arrival of his own death, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So second of all, coming into the light of Christ will mean parting with the approval of this world. So you see, to believe in Christ, to come into his light, which you must do to be saved, will mean that it will cost you. Are you willing to pay the cost of coming to Christ? And finally, brothers and sisters, do you see the response of this blind beggar to this miraculous sign? It serves as a model for us. 
to follow by the Spirit. As Christians, we are those whose eyes have been opened by Jesus Christ. We are those who have come to believe that he is the light of the world. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now we are those who are to bear bold witness to the truth about Jesus, just as you see this blind beggar doing in the passage. People may mock you, they may ridicule you, they may persecute you like the Pharisees did of him. People may intimidate you with threats if you, like the Pharisees did of him. You may face the loss of many things for it, like this man faced as he stood up to the Pharisees. Yet we are to be those who boldly say with this man, he is a prophet. In fact, he is the Christ, the Son of God. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. He's the light of the world. John 12, 42-43 says that many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If we're ever going to maintain a bold public witness to our faith in Jesus Christ, in our cities, in our workplaces, in our families, our neighborhoods, colleges, universities. We must love the glory which comes from God more than we do the glory that comes from man. And only the Spirit can enable us to do that. The world of men, shrouded in darkness, the darkness of ignorance and folly, the darkness of moral depravity, the darkness of bondage to sin and the tyranny of the devil, the darkness of living under the shadow of death, and judgment. Is there any hope for those of us who sit in darkness? There's just one hope. It's the one who said, I am the light of the world, and then opened the eyes of the man born blind. The one hope of this darkened world is Jesus Christ. The prophet Zechariah put it this way in first in Luke one, seventy eight through seventy nine. He says that he is the sunrise who has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let all those who are in darkness this morning come into the light of Christ. Let us who are in the light continue walking in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter of Scripture, this dramatic story which is also a historical account written by the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life of an incredible encounter in which his glory was revealed through a statement, through a miracle, and through the witness of a blind man. And we pray that it would have a deep impact upon our souls, that you would cause us to take it in by faith and that it would sink into our hearts and enlarge our faith and trust in Christ, our awe and reverence of him, our love and devotion to him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.